Good morning. Open your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 55. We'll look at verses 1 through 5 together this morning. If you're uh, new to Berea, my name is John Ross. I'm the assistant pastor here. Excited for the opportunity to preach this morning. We studied the value of God's Word in our last series that ended last Sunday. And we'll return to our series in Acts this week. And I think this will be a good text for us to consider as we transition. If you're using one of the black Bibles in front of you, it's on page 615. Hear the word of the Lord from Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 5. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Let's pray. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. Lord, it endures to our generation. We pray, Lord, that we would be able to open your word, that we would delight in it. Open your word to us and be glorified. We pray this in the strong name of Christ. Amen. Well, since we are jumping into a completely different part of Scripture than we've been before, we do want to give a little bit of context about what we are reading about, right? Who is Isaiah? Well, Isaiah was a prophet to Judah in the 8th century B.C. It's 800 years before Christ. This is before the fall of Jerusalem, and this is before the exile of God's people to Babylon. Isaiah lived in an era when God's people had forgotten the Lord's promises, and they had neglected his commandments. The message of Isaiah can be summarized in his name, which means Yahweh is salvation. Throughout his writings, Isaiah announces God's plan of lavish grace and glory for those who turn from the false promises and fears of this world and turn toward God. He announces God's unfolding plan of grace is not only for rebellious Israel, but for the nations. The Lord will accomplish this for his name's sake and for his glory. In our passage this morning, we witness the God of Israel extending an invitation to join him in a lavish feast. We'll consider this feast this morning in four parts. First, we'll consider the nature of the feast. Second, we'll consider the benefactors of the feast. Third, we'll consider the Lord of the feast. And last, we'll consider the extent of the feast. So first, the nature of this feast. The style of this invitation 
mimics the call of a street vendor who is hawking his goods. Now, this isn't something that we would normally see in America, right? Uh, unless you go to a ballpark or a stadium, a guy's trying to sell you expensive peanuts, right? But in a lot of other countries, this uh, is still very common. Street vendors uh, are making food on the street and they're selling their wares and they want you to come and buy it, right? Well, in this threefold invitation, we see here that Isaiah is uh, personifying a street vendor, but he's speaking for the Lord. Let's look. This is a threefold come in, in Isaiah 55. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. One. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. That's the second one. Third, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Well, as you may have guessed, this is not a literal feast, right? God's not inviting, him, inviting us to a physical table, but this feast is symbolic of something else. Well, what is this feast symbolic of? What does it represent? Now, this is, this is crucial because this is uh, what our sermon uh, will hinge around this morning. Isaiah uses the analogy of a feast to describe joyful obedience in the presence of the Lord. I'll say that again. Isaiah uses the analogy of a feast to describe joyful obedience in the presence of the Lord. Okay, so how do we get that? How do we get that from the text? Well, there's a threefold invitation, which we just looked at, and it's paralleled with a threefold listen. This is common in Hebrew poetry to, to have parallels of passages. And so we see, come, come, come. After that, in uh, the middle of verse two, he starts to say, Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. That's the first one. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Those are two and three. So in each, for each come, there's an answer in listen, right? And even, even in that, he says, listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Incline your ear and what? Come to me hear that your soul may live. God is inviting Israel to enjoy him, to delight in him, to delight in his word and his promises, and to feast on the goodness of his presence. The word of God nourishes our souls, doesn't it? It grants life and vitality and energy and strength now, as we, as we study the nature of this feast, we'll consider it in three aspects. We'll consider that it's prepared and plentiful and purchased. It is a prepared feast. Consider this first. Some things in life are just so commonplace, so everyday, that we really don't give them much thought, especially as it concerns how it might reflect the Lord. Food is one of those things, Right? We eat every day, but we really don't think much of it. It's just part of life. We eat, uh, we, we go on, we do our thing. It's hard for us to imagine a world where food does not exist. It just doesn't make sense to us. Um, but food and eating, if you think about it, are concepts that the Lord has invented, right? So stepping out of time before there's creation, God has created all things to reflect him he has done so in such a way where he, he does it freely. He does what he wants. He does what he pleases. And so he makes everything in such a way where it reflects him and reflects his character. And like everything the Lord has made, 
eating itself has a way of pointing to God and to his grace. The reality is that in all of life, not just in eating, but in all of life, we must depend on something that is outside of ourselves to sustain us. Food reminds us of that reality. We don't last very long without eating, do we? We are limited in that way. And when we eat, we take something that is foreign to us, right? It exists outside of us, outside of our power. It is not of us. And we take it in and we consume it. And then what does it do? It becomes a part of our very being and it sustains us. Do you see the picture of God's grace in the simple act of eating? We are taking something that is outside of ourselves. Consider that we take God's grace, God's goodness, God's holiness. It is outside of ourselves. It is foreign to us. And we take it in and we make it a part of our own being. And it sustains us and it keeps us and it nourishes us. When we listen to God's word, God's word is foreign to us. It is outside of us and we take it in and it becomes a part of us. And when it becomes a part of us, we are sustained we are kept, and we live. Here in Isaiah 55, we see that God has prepared not saltines and tap water for us. He's prepared a feast for us in his presence. And that feast is joyful obedience in the presence of the Lord. And when you come to the table, you're not asked to bring anything else. The Lord has prepared the feast. He is the one who gets the glory for it. He is the one who has done it. You don't bring your good deeds. You don't bring self-righteousness to the table. You don't bring your family history or your social standing. They all pale in comparison to the holiness of God. When I was, uh, when I was a broke college student, uh, I often lived off of Hot Pockets and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, right? That's just how you, how you kind of get by uh, and during that season of my life, Thanksgiving was my favorite holiday. Because what happens at Thanksgiving? You go home, somebody else is cooking for you who does a much better job than you do, and you go home and you're not expected to lift a finger. You just come and you eat and you enjoy. My mom was happy to prepare it for me, and I was happy to accept it. When you come to the Lord's table, you don't come with other things along with you. You just come and you eat and you enjoy. If you're invited to a dinner party at a five-star restaurant and the host says, hey, it's on me, you don't bring a tray of Hot Pockets and put it on the table and brag about what you've done, right? That's ridiculous. That's foolish. That's insulting to the host and it's embarrassing for you, right? No, instead, what do you do? You come empty-handed and you receive what is good, and you are filled. To let God's word nourish you, to be a part of this feast, you must listen to him. You must enjoy him. Not only is this meal prepared for you, it is plentiful. It's extravagant. It's lavish. It's posh. We are instructed to delight ourselves in rich food in verse 2. But on top of that, we're also told that there is water, there is wine, and there's milk. That's a, a strange picture, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever been to a dinner 
where they've had water and wine and milk, and they just say, you know, have at it. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But this, this odd junk juxtaposition is intentional. Isaiah is drawing our attention to something. He's giving us a picture of a meal that has everything, right? And on top of the water, there's wine and there's milk. Both of those things were, uh, they weren't cheap. They were actually really extravagant in Isaiah's day. And just to provide further context for this, consider this. Consider that when King Solomon, he's in, in the uh, Song of Solomon, when he speaks of the extravagant joy in being joined with his wife, he says, I drank my wine with my milk. Hey now, who does that? People who lack for nothing. People who don't hold back on enjoying themselves. This is the table that God has provided for us. To have these together at the same table is to have opulent, joyful, lavish extravagance. And this is what the Lord calls us to when we are called to listen to him and to his word. God lacks for nothing. And we see that here at his table. And he says, join me, listen to me, hear that your soul may live. Moreover, water and wine and milk, they each represent a different aspect of what it means to be at the Lord's table and to uh, what he provides in his presence. Water is a staple of life. And like water, God refreshes, revitalizes, cleanses, and restores. You can last for a little while without food, but as anybody who's fasted before can tell you at great lengths, you will not last long without water. God's word is like water. And friends, I'm sure you know what it's like when you go for long stretches without reading scripture. It's like your soul is dry and parched and arid and you need refreshing. You might not even realize that it's the fact that you haven't been in the word and you haven't been praying. There's something about you inside that says, I'm just, life just feels dry and worn out. And when your soul is thirsty and parched and dry and dirty, remember that the Lord offers water to those who thirst. There's wine at this table. Now, when something is worth celebrating, what do you do? You break out the wine, right? Why do we do that? Because wine is joyous and it's intoxicating. Being in the Lord's presence is joyous and intoxicating. And because wine is expensive, you bring it out on the occasions when you want to tell your guests, this is worth it. This is an occasion worth the wine. Let's break out the wine. Coming into God's presence, returning to him is something worth celebrating. Lastly, there's milk. Milk is, was not only costly in Isaiah's day, it was filling. It was uh, dense in life-giving nutrients. And like, likewise, God's word is able to provide sustenance and strength, bringing health to even those who are infants in the faith. 1 Peter 2, verses 2 through 3 says, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Lastly, as we consider the nature of the meal, we see that it is purchased. Read verse one with me. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, 
Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. So if you, if you have no money, how can you buy something? Isn't that odd how, he's, how it's phrased there? He doesn't say, come and eat for free. We're giving handouts. Um, he doesn't say, come and taste a sample. No, he says, come, buy without money and without cost. How can someone who is broke pay for something? Friends, a broke man can only pay for something if someone else is footing the bill. And as we'll discuss at length later, it is Jesus Christ, the bread of life, whose flesh is true food, whose blood is true drink. He is the one who has paid the price on our behalf. And because Christ has bought us with the price, the Father says, come, welcome, listen, enjoy me. This brings us to our next point, the benefactors of the feast. In this passage, who is the Lord calling out to? What do we see here? Well, first we see that he calls out to everyone who thirsts and he who has no money. So in essence, the audience is not just Judah or Israel, but everyone who thirsts, anyone who has no money, who is bankrupt. And so this message is for every broken and sinful man. Friends, every single one of us stands completely bankrupt before God. Before Christ was in our life, we sinned like it was our job. And the paycheck we earned for that sin was death and separation from a holy God. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. To realize that this this message, this invitation is for you, you must realize that you are spiritually bankrupt and in need of God's provision. Christians, this is something that we, we often forget. Without Christ, we are just as bankrupt as the next man. So that means that there is no room for condescension at the Lord's table, for we are all spiritually bankrupt. Christ is truly better than anything this world has to offer. But complaining about other people and their sinful behavior doesn't exalt Christ. It exalts us. And we laud ourselves over people. No, we are in need of God's grace. We are just as bankrupt. If there is any part of you that says that you deserve God's favor, that says that you deserve God's grace, you're just holding on to Monopoly money. When you go to cash it in, it's not going to be worth anything. Please realize that we are all spiritually bankrupt. We have no money. But the Lord invites us to come to buy and to eat. Second, we see that this invitation, in this invitation, the Lord asks one question of his audience. What is that one question? We find it at the top of verse 2. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor on that which does not satisfy? Man, this is a heart-wrenching question, isn't it? I mean, is this not convicting? Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor not that which does not satisfy? And you are starving. 
Why do we spend time and money and effort and thought and emotion on so many things that leave us starved and wanting when God himself, the giver of all good gifts, is offering himself to us? Why do we spend hours online looking at blogs and articles and Facebook for direction on issues in life only to feel like we've had all the life sucked out of us? Why do we try to find ultimate satisfaction and validation in high-wage jobs or perfect families or immaculate houses or social acceptance or accumulation of knowledge when those things have never given us true satisfaction and they never will? Why? God calls out. He says, come to me, delight in me, listen diligently to me, and then, then you'll be satisfied. What might we say in response to this? Yeah, I'm not really interested. Um, It's not really that important. I get get the gist. Thank you. Um, Thanks, but no thanks. Uh, I I don't really have time. I'm really busy. Um, I mean, do do we realize how foolish it is to say things like this? We are flat, broke, and starving. And God calls out to us in the street, invites us inside to feast with him. And we respond by saying, you know, that's a nice, off, nice for you to offer. Um, but I don't think you realize how long it takes me to find something of, uh, of value in this dumpster. I don't think you realize how long it takes me to dig to find something that will, that will fill me. I don't have time to feast. I'm too busy. Consider this question personally, friends. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Let the realization that we are spiritually bankrupt humble you. But don't end there. Be encouraged that Christ has paid the way for you to join the feast of God if you turn to him. This brings us to our next point, the Lord of the feast. Our passage this morning belongs to a section where Isaiah prophesies about a figure called the servant. Now, if you've read through Isaiah, you're familiar with the servant, but let's review. In chapter 49, Isaiah begins by saying uh, of this servant that he calls out to distant coastlands and people afar, that he would be a light for the nations, that salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. He was deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, and yet kings and princes will bow before him. In chapter 50, he goes on to say that he is not rebellious, giving his back to those who strike and his cheeks to those who pull out the beard. He hid not his face from disgrace and spitting in order to be obedient to the Lord. Most famously, in 52 and 53, he depicts the servant as pierced for our transgressions crushed for our sins. We are remarkably healed by his wounds. It was the will of God to crush him, that the servant bears the sins of many, interceding for sinners. This servant, predicted over 600 years before his birth, is most certainly and prophetically Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Here in chapter 55, Isaiah connects the servant to David's promised descendant. 
the king who would reign eternally. In other words, the prophesied Messiah and the prophesied servant are one and the same. Let's read uh, verse 3 and verse 4. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander to the peoples. So Isaiah is connecting this feast of God with the Messiah who is going to come. They are interlinked. We are able to join the feast of God's presence and God's instruction because Christ, the suffering servant and the long-awaited king, not only paid the way, but because he is the feast himself. Consider the role that food plays in salvation history. Now, we don't have time to, to cover all the bases, but consider this. When Adam and Eve sinned, how did, they, how did they do it? They sinned by eating, right? God provided this lavish garden for them to enjoy. His presence was there continually. And they ate from the one tree that God told them that they couldn't eat from. And the parallel we see in their eating of the forbidden fruit is that the rebellion that was once foreign to them is taken in and becomes a part of them. And, and instead of sustaining them, it brings death. God institutes a number of, of feasts in Israel's calendar for them to remember and celebrate that the Lord has been gracious and merciful to them, that he's given them his word, and that he is present with them. And then when Christ the Messiah comes, Emmanuel, who is God with us, he says, anyone who drinks the water that I give will never be thirsty again. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Christ says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He feeds the 5,000 and the, and the 3,000. He dines with tax collectors and sinners, so much so that people accuse him of being a glutton and a drunk. At the Passover feast, Christ initiates the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. We'll celebrate that a week from today. I hope you'll come back and join us for that. But he takes the bread and he breaks it. And he says, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He pours the wine and says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant of my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Christ offers himself up for sinful man so that we might take his righteousness, something that was foreign to us, and incorporate it into our very being to where the Lord, the Lord God sees only his righteousness. It's not the food that does that. It's not the Lord's Supper that does that. It's Christ that does that. But we see that parallel initiated in the Lord's Supper where we have failed to listen perfectly as Isaiah is commanding us to do, to listen, where we have failed to listen, Christ has succeeded. Where we have sinned and rebelled, Christ was perfectly obedient, perfectly so. And the only time that he ever left his Father's presence was when he took our sin, sin that was foreign to him. 
and took it upon himself and made it his own. Christ is not just the purchase price for this feast. He is the feast himself. We are filled and nourished and strengthened by Christ in his presence. He grants true life, true vitality, and he gives life that lasts not just for the afternoon or the day or the week or the month or the year, but for all of eternity, Christ feeds us and, and sustains our souls. If you're not a, a Christian and you're in the process of considering Christ, I'm really glad that you're here. But I want to ask, have you felt this ache? Maybe you felt this ache in your soul that feels something like hunger, like your soul itself is hungry. Maybe you feel spiritually parched and you thirst for something more. Please know that you are in a room full of people who have experienced the same thing and have found the everlasting satisfaction that comes in knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Fellow Christians, if you have truly experienced the feast of Christ and his presence, know that one of the most powerful ways to witness to your friends and your family and your neighbors and coworkers is to delight in Christ. Find delight in him. Speak often of your satisfaction in him. Love life because you love Jesus. Spend time in the scriptures. Enjoy his presence and listen to his instruction. Invite others to the feast. Enjoy God and make it obvious that your life is better because you have found satisfaction in him. This brings us to our final point, the extent of the feast. Let's read verses three through five and we'll start with I will make. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. We see here that the, the invitation to join God at this feast is not just for Judah, not just for Israel, but for the nations. This feast of joyful obedience in his presence extends to people of every tribe and tongue. Christ, it says, is a witness to the nations and a leader and commander for the nations. He stands ready to save and ready to send. Friends, do you, do you want to see a nation that you do not know run to Christ? Does that excite you at all? Are you pumped that people from our local congregation, people from Evans, Georgia, have traveled to Madagascar to speak to a tribe that has not heard of Christ and is hearing it for the first time because of the faithfulness of people here at Berea? Does that excite you? Do you want to see thirsty souls find satisfaction in him? The world is starving for a savior. And as people who have benefited so greatly from this feast, why would you continue to spend money on that which is not bread and labor on that which does not satisfy? Why not be all in? Let's join together in reaching our neighbors 
and the nations for Christ by giving time and money and labor and effort into inviting people to join us in this feast. If we understand that obedience to Christ is the true path to joy, if we can wrap our heads around that, why would we hold on to things that do not satisfy? What is holding you back from giving your all for Christ? Why, why settle for created things when you can have the creator? Why settle for tepid water when you can have the fountainhead from which all good things flow? Let go of that which is not bread. Delight yourself in the bread of life and invite others to join you at the table. When Jesus celebrated his last meal, his last Passover feast with the disciples. He said something interesting. He said, I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Do you realize that Jesus is saying, I will feast again. Jesus is returning for his own and when he feasts we will be there with him. When sin and death are fully defeated and the old has passed away, God's people will feast with the risen king. And when we look around us, we'll see people from every tribe and tongue and people and language all gathered around Christ, rejoicing and delighting themselves in the lavish grace of Christ who was and who is and who is to come. In, in John, John's conclusion of Revelation, you know, John sees all of this. He sees this feast. And in his conclusion, he uses these words echoing what we have read this morning. Chapter 22, verse 17. John says this. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Water of life without price. Friends, this invitation is extended to you. If you've never accepted Christ, he is calling you to this feast. He says, I have paid the way. You just come to me. You stay in my presence. Listen to me and you will delight in the richest of food. Christian, for you, if you have not been spending time in the Lord's presence, if you uh, are consciously disobeying him, I, I plead with you, hear the word of the Lord and come to the feast. Be reconciled and eat what is good. Stop spending your money on that which is not bread and your labor on that which does not satisfy and come to the one who is eternally satisfying. Let's pray. God, you are so gracious and so merciful. When we were broke, when we were out on the streets, you called to us and said, come. Lord, you are our delight. You are better than anything this world has to offer. And so, Lord, we gladly 
we gladly abandon anything that would keep us from coming to enjoy you at your feast, the feast of your presence, the feast of joyful obedience. Lord, convict us where we need to be convicted and heal us where we need to be healed. We rely on you. We rely on your word. And we are grateful for the invitation to come. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.